0: Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 9 and read through Genesis chapter 7, verse 5. I want to see Pastor Appleton try that in Romans. (laughs) (laughs) Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 7, verse 5. Last time we were in Genesis, we saw how the godly line, the line of faith through Seth, from Adam and Eve, had corrupted themselves in the world. That's why the way I set before you the sons of God and the daughters of men. And I know there's a difference of opinion of that in real uh, believers and commentators and theologians and ministers and churches and so forth. But uh, the way I see it is that the covenant families were mixing with the world. And one by one, more and more, they get reduced in number. And they stopped believing and worshiping and calling on the name of the Lord as they had done under the preaching of men like Enoch, who was so godly that God took him to heaven without death. What a great sign, what a great witness to the people of God in that time. There is a new heavens, there is a new earth. God took Enoch, he didn't die. There is eternal life for us. That would have been a powerful sermon, as it were God taking a man to heaven. In their midst without him seeing death. And yet still. the Sons of God. The, the adopted children of God by faith. Corrupted themselves with the daughters of men. The daughters of mere men. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they married together. And of course when believers willfully turn away from God. And join with the world. They end up walking away. And the covenant families one by one. Until our text. This morning, as we see it. 1,500 years after creation, there's only one man left. That's how corrupt the church has gone. This is one one more argument, by the way, that it is... The sons of God are the children of believers... And the daughters of men are the children of unbelievers. Because if it's not that... If it's angels, for example, and human beings... What happens to all the believers? Why do they dwindle? Why is only Noah left? Angels and human beings don't corrupt the church. And if it's kings and commoners... again. How did we get to where there's just Noah? The, the only way that answers that question if it, is if it, it is the children of believers and the children of unbelievers marrying. And that leads people away from God. And now just Noah is left. And so it fits the context. It makes sense. Noah alone is left. And God's judgment has been pronounced and will fall. And in the midst of that judgment, what I want us to see this morning is God's continued covenant of preservation going to Noah this is called the covenant of preservation it's not the only time I'm going to deal with it but we're going to touch on it this morning why is it called that what is this covenant that God makes with Noah why is it important to us that's what I want us to notice this morning as we turn to God's word so let's pray one more time father bless this word cause us to understand it rightly cause me to preach it faithfully and may you be glorified in the sanctification, in the faith, in the growing repentance and obedience of your people as they come to you by your word. And so, Father, bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This is God's holy word. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. And all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark on its side. And you shall make with it lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I'm not going to go into the sort of nuts and bolts of the text this time and look at the ark and how God commanded him to build it and the flood. I want to save that for next time when we get to the actual floodwaters. And we'll look at it and we'll show that the account is believable. It's realistic. And in fact, it is the word of God. But this morning, I want to really look at the spiritual. Meaning of this text, the idea of God sending a great judgment on the earth and how it benefits us as believers. You know, last time that we were in Genesis a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to you about man's total depravity. And we looked at that doctrine and how important it is for us to know that so that we can give God all the grace, or all the glory and honor and praise, and look to Him for grace alone and not look at me, I'm a little bit better, I made one right decision, you know, things like that. There's nothing in me, there's only a reason to punish me. And we looked at that. But what I want to notice this morning is how the judgment of God, and that's what the flood is, how it benefits us, how it benefited Noah and his family, spiritually, and why this text is here in the Bible for us, the church, to know God more, to be transformed into the likeness of God more, to increase in our faith and repentance. How does it help us to do that? And so I want you to notice how this flood, the judgment of God, is sent on account of the wickedness of fallen man. That's my first point. That The flood is sent. Judgment is sent. Because of the wickedness of fallen man. You know, the key verse in chapter 6, the verse that really fuels the rest of the chapter, isn't verse 2, the sons of God and the daughters of men that everybody wants to debate about and discuss. It's verse 5. That is the principal verse of this chapter. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we looked at that last time and how that teaches the reformed doctrine of total depravity, that no good thing comes out of us, that apart from the grace of God, there is no desire for God, no desire to glorify him. Everything we do is an act of robbery, an act of treason. Even when we're doing something, you know, horizontally or earthly good, we're not doing it for him. And he made us. He made us for him. How can we do anything? How can we breathe without being thankful to God and wanting to glorify our maker? That's our purpose for being. And yet in this text, we see that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And what I want to point out to you here is that's not a judgment on this one generation you know four and a half thousand years ago that was so corrupt because well you know the angels and the men had made these giant monster beings and they were so wicked God had to wipe out the earth before they infected everybody with Nephilim blood and something like that and then what, what we end up saying is what well we don't deserve that judgment. See, they deserved it. They're worse than us. Verse 5 is about them. It's about how bad they got. But we're not that bad. We don't deserve that judgment because we don't have you know these monstrous angel men creatures. And again, if God judged man for that, if God punished human beings because these superior, these invincible angels, which were demons, fallen angels, came down and, and just preyed upon human women... And made these monstrous creatures and now God kills all the people for that. I mean, think of the injustice of that. But the bigger issue is that this verse, verse 5, isn't about that generation. Isn't about that time or that group of people or, or something that happened with that people. It's about fallen man. That fallen man has no single thought that's without sin. There is nothing in fallen man in that time, in the time that followed it, in yesterday, today, and forever until Christ returns. There is no thing in us that God would look upon and say, there's a reason to not send a flood there. Oh, look, that person just did something that had some goodness in it. That's not the case. God's judgment on man is that every intent of the thoughts, every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And that's all of us apart from the grace of God. Now, by the grace of God, we have a new nature. By the grace of God, if you're a believer, you've been born again. You do have thoughts that want to please God, that love God. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus. If you're a Christian, you do love your neighbor as yourself to some degree. But again, even as I say it that way, we still as Christians never do anything perfectly, right? Even my love to God is tainted with my continued vanity and pride and anger and whatever. And if I really took any of my good works and put them before God, he couldn't accept it apart from Christ. There is real goodness in it from him because he's given me a new birth, but that goodness is corrupt. It's like making an omelet with five eggs and one of them's rotten. You can't cut off a little piece of the good part, can you? The omelet infects everything. And that's the way we are as believers. We do have love for God. We do have faith, but we're corrupt. But here this is talking about man apart from the grace of God. And that's what I want you to see. When God looks on the world of that day and he looked for a single reason to not destroy it. Give me one person. Give me one act. Give me one thought that says righteousness. There wasn't one. And what I want to put before you is that's still true today. That every generation deserves the flood. That's what we have to see in this text. That every generation deserves the judgment of God to wipe it out. That we all deserve it. We hear so oftentimes, I think today, and I think we believe it to some degree... That, well, you know, yes, we have bad influence in our lives. And, you know, we don't want our children to hang around with the bad kid on the block. And, you know, it's the world corrupts us and Satan corrupts us. And the world and Satan are out there and they're real, right? But Jesus said that it's because of our hearts that evil is in the world. I mean, he made that clear. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, says Jesus, proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things rather, come from within and defile a man. Jesus says all those things, right? That's not the Jesus of much of the church today. Well, I just want to love you and I mean, all those evil things that he talks about. Jesus understands that these things come from the heart of man. This is the heart of man. Back on September 29th of 2019, I found it on, the, uh, on our website. You can go on our website, by the way. Click on sermons. Click on, you know, um, the, the, you'll see the sermon link come up. Sermons also have Sunday school lessons and, and the new members class and everything else. But you click on that. And then you can go to Sermon Archive and you can find sermons back from like 2004, you know, from everybody who's ever preached in this church. Well, I preached this sermon when we were in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, on September 29th, 2019. And it was on Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And I named this sermon after the first five verses or first five words of Jesus in verse 11. If you then being evil. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is specifically to the disciples. The disciples came to him and Jesus began to say to them. These are the disciples that Jesus just looks at and offhandedly says, Well, if you then being, not were, being evil, and then he goes on. And that's, again, apart from the grace of God. And what I want you to see is that in the wickedness of man, there is not a single reason For God to not send the flood. Not a single one. And yet he delayed for 120 years. And we see God's judgment now finally coming in our text. And so I want you to notice secondly. The flood is sent. Judgment is sent. Because of the holiness of God. Judgment is sent because of the holiness of God. Man has corrupted himself, he has lost his righteousness, he's fallen, he's selfish, he's got a sinful nature. But God is still holy, and God is still perfect, and God is still righteous. And it says that God looked and God saw. Do you see that in verse 5? I know it's not in our text, but it says the Lord saw. But then if you go to verse 12 of our text. So God looked upon the earth. This is an anthropomorphism saying God doesn't just haphazardly decide. God investigates, God checks it out. God comes down and he he examines everything carefully and he sees the reality of the situation and it calls for the flood. That's the point here. God will judge. You know, I think that's the big lie that we tell ourselves as unbelievers and that the world constantly says, God's not gonna judge. God is love, pastor, don't you know that? God is love and he's up there in heaven right now wringing his hands over all the people that don't believe in him. And he's weeping and he's trying to get the people to believe in him and live for him, but they just won't do it. And his heart is breaking constantly for the world. And that's not the the God of the Bible. All right, God's love of benevolence is on all. But this God who loves all things, as it were, and cares for them and provides and does good even to the wicked. This God is holy. And that means that he absolutely hates sin. We saw it in our call to worship. Did you catch it? That God hates the soul of the one who does evil? That God has a hatred for the wicked? I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard where pastors will read, Well, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, it doesn't really mean hate it. It doesn't really mean that. But then, how can it really mean love? Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now, it's true, God doesn't hate the way we hate, filled with sin and selfishness and pride, but God hated Esau in that he handed Esau over to his sins and did not choose him and gave him eternal damnation. There is no greater hatred than that. To give over one, to their sins, and we need to recognize that God is a holy God, that God is going to hold us accountable. In fact, Jesus said He will hold us accountable for every single thought. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. God is holy, He can't allow even a single sin to go on unpunished forever. That's a, that's infinite blasphemy to him. That's cosmic treason to him. It reflects upon him. God who has made all things. Think of it. He's made all things. He sustains all things. He's going to sustain a thing that is, that is blaspheming him. It makes God look corrupt. It makes God look as if he's not holy. He's not just. And God, because he is merciful, he can be patient, but judgment will come. That's the point of this text. You recognize that the judgment of Noah is the greatest judgment, not just in the Old Testament, but until Jesus returns. There has never been anything like the flood of Noah. We're not talking about a couple of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zebulun and a few others where sexual sin was rampant and God destroyed them. And he did. We're not talking about a few nations in the land of Canaan, That were given over to idolatry and cannibalism and all sorts of sexual sin. And God told the Israelites, wipe them out, man, woman, and child. We're not talking about that. This is so, so much worse than that. This is a flood that comes and kills every single human being. And there were, if not millions, hundreds of thousands over 1,500 years on the earth. And God's going to destroy them all. God is a holy God, beloved. That's the story of Noah. God looks. God sees. God is patient and long-suffering. And God is just. And that's the point of verse, look at verse 12, 11 through 13. The earth was corrupt. I want you to notice that word, corrupt. It means spoiled, ruined. It can even mean destroyed. You know, when the, when the clay becomes ruined in the potter's hand, he just smashes it all up and makes something else. It's that word. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed... Notice, it's like he checks it out. It, yes, he heard it, now he's looking. And indeed it was corrupt. Same word. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Same word. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Ruined, spoiled, destroyed. So what's God going to do? Verse 13. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will corrupt them. I know our text says destroyed, same Hebrew word. I will corrupt them with the earth. They've corrupted the earth. I will corrupt them with the earth. Do you see this is the first example of the lex talionis, the law of Revenge. That God is going to do... The, man has corrupted the earth, so God will use the earth to corrupt man. Man has destroyed the earth, so God will use the earth to destroy man. God is just. And God is holy. And God is the one who is bringing the judgment. I want you to see that in verse 17. And behold, here it is. I myself. I myself. You know, a lot of times atheists and critics of our faith... Or even of the idea of God in general, right? Uh, They'll say, well, God was invented by primitive human beings who were fearful of the storm, you know? The storm comes and you're like, oh, I'm afraid. I'm going to invent a God who's in control of the storm. Now I feel safe. And that's the way they say religion was invented, right? How does that work when the God that you invent is holy utterly holy and it's not the storm you know it's interesting when you study peoples who are not advanced by the you know industrial revolution or by technology or so forth people that are basically in the agricultural stage or you know even people without written languages and there were some groups to study not too long ago they had wondrous ways of predicting the weather they could look at the the signs like Jesus even says you see the sky is red you say a storm is coming the, for generations, for thousands of years, man has known how to sort of predict the weather, how to take care of himself in times of disaster, how to even cure certain diseases and sicknesses. They knew how to treat things in even ingenious ways. Man's not afraid of those things. Right? You, nobody's afraid of the storm. Okay, the storm is coming. Go inside. But you know what's fearful? What's fearful is a knowing, rational, moral being who is perfectly holy and all-powerful and he sends the storm to get you. And that's what happens in our text. In verse 17, beloved, this is no accidental storm. This is no random thing. Well, it just so happened that all these low pressure systems kind of combined in a once in a lifetime, once in an earth's lifetime, you know, uh, occurrence. And this massive flood formed accidentally. Verse 17. The Hebrew literally says, I behold, I, I will send it. I'm making it happen. I'm doing this actively and on purpose. The judgment of the wicked is not something that that happens and God wishes it didn't. God is the one who judges. God is the one who will throw sinners into hell. It won't be that they're going there and God's trying to get them out. He will put them there. And God is the one who puts the flood on the earth. And wipes out every single human being. And beloved, we need to know this. We need to understand this. We need to recognize that the flood of God and the flood of God's wrath that will come again is because of who he is. That he is a holy God. That he will not compromise his righteousness and holiness. He has made a way of salvation. He has made an ark in this text. And all you had to do was believe and get on the ark and you would be saved. But God's wrath is coming. And today we have the promise of the second coming of Christ. And it's likened to the flood of Noah. Because the flood of Noah is like nothing else that's ever been. And it's because of these judgments of God that believers should get this. And and really this should help us in our walk. Did you catch in the scripture reading... The motivation—the only motivation given by Scripture as to why Noah built an ark—did you see it? It was in our Scripture reading in Hebrews 11. Why did Noah build an ark? What motivated him? What moved him to build an ark? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7: By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, it's not raining. There's no flood. Being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Notice it. Moved with godly fear. That was his motivation. Moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Beloved, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have to fear God. And at the same time, we love him. I don't know if that's hard a concept for you, but it's not for me. It's not hard for me at all. Because I had a good dad. And I loved my dad. And I feared him. And I didn't think that he was out to get me. I mean, I could, I don't even know how it goes together. I was reflecting on this. I feared him because I loved him. And I loved him because I feared him. But I knew in, that if I did certain things, my dad was going to punish me. And I didn't want to get punished that way. And that kept me from doing a lot of things that other people did that destroyed themselves with. I mean, I did enough bad stuff as it was. But believe it or not, I did have some limits. And it was because I feared my dad. And I knew he loved me. I knew he wasn't out to get me. And I don't know how else to see God, but that way, this great father who is also God, who is also holy, who will judge, who absolutely will judge. And if you would stray and you would go and, and commit these sins and leave him, don't think you'll escape. That's the point of Noah's Ark. You've got to believe in him. And you've got to turn away from sins. So much of the church today, no judgment, no judgment, no judgment. No wonder the church is like the world. Nobody fears God to actually obey him. Judgment is coming. Christians need to know that. John Calvin says this perfectly. He says how important it is for the righteous to know justice is coming and the wicked will be punished. Because otherwise, if we imagine men to go on sinning with impunity, we would not long be able to resist joining with it's only because we know he's going to judge that we're kept from becoming like the world. The very thing that the people in Noah's day forgot. And it's funny to me because one of the things that the scripture says about the second coming is that the very conditions that will bring about the judgment by fire on the world is the same unbelief in God's judgment. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, their own sexual desires, their own truth. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? You keep saying Jesus is coming. Hasn't come yet. Where is it? Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were since the beginning of creation the uniformitarian principle. Everything's the same. The layers are laid down over millions of years by dust. There are no catastrophes. Where is the promise of his coming? For this they willfully forget, Peter says, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by water. They willfully forget that God did it before. They forget about the flood of Noah. That's what we can't do. If we're going to be fearing God and living for God and being kept from sin, that we will not forget. We would not be like these scoffers because the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, the same word that they're scoffing at. It preserves them, it keeps them alive. And they scoff at it. It's like trying to scoff at God who's holding you, as Jonathan Edwards said, by a spider's web over the fire. And you're screaming at him how awful he is. And there's no reason for him to not let you go. In fact, there's every reason for him to let you go. And yet God is merciful and he delays and he delays. And so I want you to notice the righteousness of grace. The flood is sent also because of the righteousness of grace. Noah here in our text is said to be a just man, a perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Don't think that means Noah was the only good person and that's why he didn't get killed because he was good enough. Verse eight said that Noah found favor. We looked at this last time. Noah found favor. Same word for grace in Hebrew. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked at Noah with grace and God's grace found Noah and caused Noah To be one who believed and walked according to that faith. And we see many examples like this in scripture. Enoch walked with God. Noah walks with God. By the way, of no other person in scripture does it say it exactly that way. Except for Enoch and Noah. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Calvin talks about how Noah was probably the most righteous person. And he's famous for his righteousness. Even people who don't believe in Christianity have heard of Noah and the flood. And think of Noah in his day, being ridiculed, being mocked. In fact, Calvin says that Noah would have been stoned a hundred times over, but God's grace protected him, but it did not protect him from insults, from mocking, from r- ridicule, persecutions, from threats. In fact, Calvin thinks that they would have come in and, and sabotaged his work repeatedly, just for a joke. And it would have taken Noah much longer to do that. And yet, and that's because they hated him. Why? Because he's building the ark. And the ark says that God will judge. And that's the thing they don't want to believe. John, or Matthew Henry says that with every hammer of the hammering of the ark, Noah was preaching, repent, judgment's coming. Every time they heard that bang, bang, repent, repent, judgment's coming. And they hated him for it. And yet Noah bears up. The only one. Scripture is clear about that. When God says in verse 1 of chapter 7, Come into the ark, you and your house, because I have seen that you, singular, are righteous. We don't get told anything about Noah's wife or his sons or his sons' wives. Were they? Did they believe? At this point, we don't know anything about them. God's own word says, you, singular Noah, are righteous. Therefore, you and your whole house get on the ark. It was a righteousness of grace. It was a righteousness given to Noah, imputed to him, and he lived it out and he walked in it. But the only hope of anyone to be delivered from the just wrath of God is that his grace, his grace that offers salvation, that his grace would change you, that you would accept it, that you would see yourself as you really are, and that you would trust in God You know, it's interesting. Noah is said, verse 22, Noah obeyed God. He did according to all that God commanded him. Verse five, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Over and over again, Noah lived out his works were the fruit of his faith. His faith was because of God's grace. And yet Noah doesn't say a word in our text. We've read all of chapter six. Noah hasn't said anything. We'll read all of chapter 7, Lord willing, and Noah won't say a word. We'll read all of chapter 8, and Noah won't say a word. But Noah believed, and Noah obeyed. He listened to God. When he was the only one. I don't know what it's like to be the only one. There have, there have been people in history, right? Athanasius, Contramundum. When the early church was fighting over the Trinity. And, and the Arians kept getting into power. And they would excommunicate the Trinitarians. And this happened for hundreds of years. And Athanasius at one point was one of the only ones who faithfully stood for the true doctrine of scripture. That God is one God in three persons. And six times Athanasius is excommunicated. And hunt it. At one point, there was a story that said Athanasius was in a wagon, and the guards that were trying to send out to catch him and maybe even execute him were hot on his tail. And one of the guards yells up to the wagon, "Is Athanasius sitting among you?" And Athanasius stands up and says, "Athanasius is not sitting in this wagon." But he stood against the world. He really did. And then you have Martin Luther, right? When when the papal legates there and the emperor and the local rulers and the governors and all of the authority of the world, of the Holy Roman Empire, church and state, are there saying to Luther, recant or be killed. And Luther says what? I cannot recant. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. And he probably felt like the only one. But there were others. And there were others when Athanasius stood. With Noah, there was nobody else. Noah is the first. The first of all those who have ever had to stand up against the world. And it was literally Noah against the world. And yet he did not fail. And moved by godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Listen. By which the preparing of the ark by which he condemned the world. He was condemning them to God's judgment while he's prepared. That's why they hated him. And he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Don't think that Noah was good enough. Or when it says Zacharias and Elizabeth were walking before the Lord righteous in all of his ways. Or Job was righteous in all of his ways and, and blameless. That doesn't mean that they in themselves were not sinners. It means that God had saved them by grace. And that they walked according to that grace. And they were diligent in believing and growing in faith and in repentance. And they were godly people. And is the only one. And it's because of the righteousness of grace. And that, in that righteousness, God sends the flood to, to bless Noah. The flood wipes out his enemies. The flood wipes out his persecutors. The flood enables them to start again in a new world that's not corrupt, that's not filled with violence. Do you see that? That's the point. The flood comes to benefit the believer. And believe me, Christian, when God judges the world, that will be a great blessing to you. When this world goes through judgment day, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more selfishness. There'll be no more wickedness. There'll be no more preying upon the weak. There'll be no more idolatry. There'll be no more evil. And the righteous will shine like the sun. And so I want you to notice, fourthly and lastly, the the flood comes, the judgment of God comes because of the mercy of salvation. Because of the mercy of salvation. If God did not judge the wicked, he could not save his people. If he did not pour out his wrath upon sin and consume it, there would be no salvation from sin for us. And we who are still sinners, and all of us are, that tells us that God's going to make a separation even within us. He's going to take our sin away because Jesus has already borne the wrath on the cross. That's the mercy of God. The flood of Noah is the greatest act of judgment until the second coming. You know, there's a word that's invented for the flood of Noah. It's only used in reference to the flood of Noah. Hebrew has several words for, the, for flooding or overflowing of rivers. But the word mabul is used only 13 times. And it only refers to the flood of Noah. And it's all 12, 12 of the 13 are in Genesis. One is in Psalm 29. The Lord sat enthroned at the deluge. At the flood of Noah, The flood of Noah, yes, it was to destroy the wicked, but it was to save the righteous. It was to give them a new start. Noah and his family could come off the ark. There wouldn't be any more idolatry. There wouldn't be any more rape or sexual sin. There wouldn't be any more murder and the violence. It would have just been their family. God would have renewed them. He would have washed the earth clean. And that's why I think this flood is likened to baptism in First Peter where it says that there was an... Well, let me just start earlier. First Peter three eighteen. Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive by the Spirit. Listen, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who were formerly disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering long waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In in a real sense, our baptism symbolizes that God washes us from our filth and, and, and accepts us and renews us. The baptism doesn't do it, right? The flood of Noah, by the way, didn't do it either. It saved Noah and his family, but the sin was still in them. I can prove it to you. Genesis chapter eight. Verse 21, you know, when before the flood happened, I already read to you Genesis 6, verse 5, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Did man change? Did the flood actually make man better? No. Chapter 8, verse 21, then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the intent, same exact word, English changes it, but not in the Hebrew, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Every man's heart intent Continually evil, verse 5, but man, adult. Now, this actually makes it worse. Now it's from his youth. These evil thoughts are continuous from his youth. And yet God doesn't send the flood. Why? I finally got to the point of the sermon. Because of the covenant of preservation. Because God is going to preserve the earth. And there's not a single reason in any human being for God to do so. The only reason that he preserves the earth and saves us is because he is love. He is merciful. He is gracious. He says in verse 18 of our text, I will establish my covenant with you. The covenant that he promised in the garden, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I'm not going to go back on my word. I'm wiping them out. But I'm going to establish my covenant. I'm going to preserve you and him. I'm going to preserve all of the animals. I'm going to preserve this creation And we find out after the flood, God promises that he'll never do it again. Not until the final judgment. He will never again do what we deserve him to do. To to wipe us out with the flood. That's important to remember again that we would look only to God's grace. That we would look only to the righteousness which is by faith. And that we would look to God for mercy. Because it's the mercy of God that made the covenant. And it's the mercy of God that keeps the covenant. And I hope this morning that the example of Noah will assure you of the mercy of God. If you're not so much on the ark. We don't have to be on the ark. But if that, that you're in Christ. That you're on the new ark. The cross. That you come to God by the cross of Christ. There is no other way of salvation. There is a judgment coming. It's not water. It's fire this time. And it's not physical death, it's eternal death. And yet God has made a way, a way of salvation. Just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Say, I am a sinner. I deserve to be judged. But God, you're merciful. And you've sent Christ. Let me find favor in your eyes, for I trust in him. That's the message of this text. It's, the, it's a type of our salvation, and our salvation is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, for bearing your judgment. We know that ultimately Noah's faith was in Jesus, was in the seed of the woman. And you promised to establish that covenant with him because you, merely because you are merciful, decided to save a world that didn't deserve it. Help us to never think that we deserve it. We've done something to deserve it. We're doing something to deserve it. It's because you're merciful that you saved us and that you sent Jesus to become one of us so that we could be in him, your sons and your daughters whom you love. Help us to believe that, O Lord, and to live for you courageously, zealously, and humbly because it's by your grace that we are saved. In Jesus' name.